0: You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Not sure there's a better way to respond to the events of this week. So we gather today to confess the Trinity and we come once again from another painful week, a painful week of separation, a painful week of anger and division that have once again boiled to the surface in our country. People have died, there are riots, and more people have died, more violence and more destruction and everyone's got to take on it. Everyone's got to take on what it means and what we're supposed to do. And as Christians, it's hard for us to ignore this because we strive to live according to the word of God. And in a post-truth culture like ours where we no longer know who to believe, we no longer expect the truth from our institutions, our media or our leaders. So we have to stand. We have to start where things are clearest with God's word. And that's my task today, a task to do something timeless and timely, to put before you the truth of what God's word says about our current situation. And so I think it's a great day to talk about the Trinity. It's a great day to address the issue of racism and a great day to talk about the Trinity. And here's why. Because what we believe about the identity of God directly impacts the way we think about those who are made in his image. The way we think about the identity of God directly impacts the way we think about people who are made in his image. So today I'm gonna put before you a thesis and we're gonna talk about each point. The doctrine of the Trinity empowers us to love across difference. It sends us to identify with the marginalized And it equips us to be a people of peace. The doctrine of the Trinity empowers us to love across difference. It sends us to identify with the marginalized and equips us to be a people of peace. Let's start with the first part. The doctrine of the Trinity empowers us to love across difference. What does this mean? Well, the doctrine of the Trinity teaches us that at the heart of all being at the heart of all creation is unity in difference. The doctrine teaches that the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, but there is only one God. And this difference does not imply hierarchy or competition. The Son is one substance with the Father, we confess, co-equal in glory and majesty. John 1 puts this clearly. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. There is both unity and difference from eternity past the Word who was with God and who was God. Or Jesus, in Matthew 28, puts it another way. He says, baptize people in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is one God bound together in an eternal community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means that at the ground of all life and being is personal love, personal love in community. That's what love across difference is. It's community, different persons bound together in love. And that is why when God makes humankind in his image, he creates unity in diversity. Male and female he creates them, equally bearing God's image, equally valuable, two who make one flesh. There is love across difference from the first moment of human being. And it is one of the many ways that we reflect the beautiful image of God. And it is the reason why sin, when it enters the world, When it comes into the story of creation the first thing it does is destroy this unity in human beings when the image of god is destroyed by sin it always leads to division oppression and violence across human differences it's the very first symptom of the fall man and woman genesis 3 when they eat the fruit their eyes are opened and they realize they were naked they were different they were vulnerable they were exposed they are now a danger and a threat to one another And so they protect themselves with garments. Now difference implies threat. We must be separate, or one must dominate the other. The division and violence ripples down from there. Man now lords it over woman, and the woman's desire is set against the man. Cain, the farmer, murders Abel the shepherd. And at Babel, the languages are scattered and the nations divide into tribes. And so this belief continues down through the ages, fueling conflict and heartache and violence. The belief that human community is only possible when we're all the same or when one is set over the other. For us in our nation, it looks different in every nation, but for us in our nation, it began with white supremacy. That the idea that black and white can only live in community when one dominates the other or in its watered down form of segregation, when black and white people are kept separate but equal. But here, right at the beginning, we see the truth about this. It is an utter abomination and affront to the being of God, a rejection of the triune God, whose eternal community of love is the font of all life. And so we believe in the Trinity, we reject this idea at the root, at its root, and insist that precisely because we are made in God's image, the differences of skin color or gender or language never justify oppression or violence. Precisely because we are redeemed by God for us in Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female because the Trinity empowers us to love across difference. John 1, John 1, uh, 1 John 4 just puts it bluntly. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And if anyone says I love God but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he, cannot, whom he, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother Trinity, the Trinity empowers us to love across difference. So far, so good. I haven't said anything other than what has become obvious in our day. Racism is bad. It's an affront to God. But things get harder when we move to the second point and we ask, what does love look like for God? What does God's love do? And that's the second point. The doctrine of the Trinity sends us to identify with the marginalized. To identify with the marginalized. Why? To get this, we've got to go and do a little bit of Bible study. We've got to go to Psalm 146 and think about, as the psalmist here, he's identifying God by what he does. And listen to how he identifies God. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob and all his descendants Israel who were rescued from Egypt, whose hope is the Lord his God, is Yahweh his God, who did what? Who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and who keeps faith forever. God created all things. He redeemed Israel and he's trustworthy. But he goes on and he says... The God who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. He watches over the immigrants and he upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. You cannot understate the significance of this because the God of the Bible identifies himself by his actions, by what he does. He creates stuff that's how we know what god is he sends the spirit that's why we know jesus is god because he's the one who sent the spirit god who created heavens and earth he also judges the wicked but just as much in psalm 46 146 he executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry he sets the prisoners free and he watches over the immigrants and he upholds the widow and the fatherless he sums this all up by saying god lifts up those who are lowly who are bowed down So when I say marginalized, that's what I mean. Those who have been bowed down, those who are lowly, those who have been brought low. And what's fascinating about this and what's important about this is that God has singled out some parts of society as particularly in need of his protection. There's four of them. Scholars call them the quartet of the vulnerable, which when you go through the Old Testament and you look for passages about God working justice, these four pop up again and again and again. The poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. These are the people who in the ancient world were on the margins of society. They had no protection or support from the community or their families. They are disproportionately affected by famine, disease, or war, and they were often exploited by those in power. They could not defend themselves because society offered them no help. And so God takes particular interest uh, in them. He identifies with them in a particular way. So while it is equally true that God loves all Israel and he looks out for all people, he also, it's equally true that the widows, the orphans, the poor, and the ignorant matter to him. So much so that he can just describe himself as father of the fatherless, protector of widows. You were created in the image of that God, the God who is father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. So what does this mean? Well, it doesn't just mean to be sympathetic. Biblically, in the Old Testament, it means to give them justice, which in the Hebrew word for this is mishpat, which means giving a person her due or his due, punishing a wrongdoer. If he's done something wrong, he deserves punishment, right? But it also means in the Old Testament, giving protection and care to those who are due it because they're on the margins. Deuteronomy 10 says, Yahweh, your God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. God calls all his people to do likewise in Jeremiah 22. This is what Yahweh says, do what is just, what is mishpat, and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the immigrant, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood. And in Isaiah 58, is this not the fast I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke, let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Or more simply in Proverbs 31, open your mouth for the mute for those who cannot speak for the mishpat the rights of all who are destitute open your mouth and judge righteously defend the rights of the poor and the needy it's hard to underestimate how radical this is how challenging to us who try to live by this word (laughs) because sin then as now leads us to a wholly different way of thinking through the ages people have identified god with the upper echelons of society with the kings normally or with the wealthy aristocracy or with the virtuous and religious or with the monetary with with the wealthy the, the successful the kings actually in the ancient world claimed to be channels of divine power that god identified with them and the poor and the sick and the needy were seen to deserve their plight who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind right but in israel the god called yahweh identifies himself as the one who executes justice for the people on the margins, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant, and he calls his people to do the same. What does all this have to do with the Trinity? Well, the Trinity is a teaching that God does this, he identifies with the marginalized, because that's who he is, that's his identity. Because lifting up the lowly is not a side hobby for God, it's who he is. And this was revealed in the clearest and most powerful form in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, which shows us God's eternal character. That's what the Trinity means. That's the heart of the doctrine of the Trinity, by the way, is that what Jesus did reveals God's eternal character. What Jesus did reveals God's eternal character and identity. Jesus is where God once and for all lifts up those who are lowly. He identifies with mankind, taking on our human nature. He is born not into wealth or riches, but into an impoverished and oppressed Jewish family. He is baptized, taking his place with repentant sinners. He seeks out the marginalized in his day, the Samaritans, the widows, the tax collectors. He suffers an unjust crucifixion, dying at the hands of the elites, the wealthy and powerful religious people. He takes his place with the lowest of all, becoming sin, who knew no sin for us, hanging as a criminal between two thieves. But God, once again, does what he does. He raised up the lowly. He raised Jesus from the dead. He raised Jesus who died for his enemies. He raised Jesus to live forever as the one who reconciles and completes the mission of God to reconcile his creation to himself and to one another. And so the Trinity means that God is eternally and infinitely for the other. He's for the other eternally and infinitely which means he's eternally and infinitely for you. And when faith, when by faith you confess that this is who God is, everything changes. Everything changes when you believe that Jesus is who God is and that God has identified himself, him in, himself in Jesus with the poor miserable sinner that you are, that he's lifted you up from the lowliness of your sin, of your death, of your disease, you're freed. You're freed to tell the truth about your own sin You're free to tell the truth about who God is, the one who exalts those who don't deserve it. Did God do this for you because you deserved it? Did God do this for you because you weren't really responsible for it? Did he do it before you because he knew you would never take advantage of his graciousness? Did he do it for you because, well, you would never fall back into sin? No, he did it for you because that's who he is because that's who he is, pure eternal personal love for the other in Jesus Christ, the love that makes its object lovable. And right now, by the power of his spirit, this triune God is reforming you in this image. He is empowering you to identify with the other. And this means asking today, who are on the margins of our society? Who are the poor, widow, immigrant, and orphan today? Who are the people who've been exploited by those with power and wealth? Who are those who are most adversely affected by famine and war? What people need a defender because society itself provides none. How do we lift up those who've been brought down low in our society? How do we open our mouths for those who cannot speak? These are not the questions of a political party. These are not the questions of a political party. They are the questions of those who believe in the Trinity, who believe that God is the one who identifies with the marginalized and who are called to, well, Romans, Galatians 2, remember the poor or Hebrews 13, to remember those who are in prison as though you're in prison with them as those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Or as Paul puts it with with Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And the answer to all those questions of who's on the margins, that changes from age to age. In Martin Luther's day, it meant showing hospitalities to the exiles from religious persecution. And that even for Luther included those, he he said in one of his lectures, who were exiled from uh, the Turkish lands, who were Germany's enemies. And he praised his Prince Frederick for supporting the church's efforts to aid religious exiles. And he lamented the lack of support from other rulers. In our days, it's easy. It's easy to recognize the plight of the unborn because they are literally voiceless. Their lives are valued as almost nothing. And so we speak for them. And so we work for them. And this week, a large sector of our society, the black community has been crying out that it has been kept on the margins. It's not simply pointing to one incident of violence. This is bigger than George Floyd. This is bigger than Ahmaud Aubrey, This is bigger than a few bad police officers. They're pointing to the ongoing cumulative effect of having been on the margins for centuries by legal and institutional racism. And I know this is, this is a controversial point. This is a difficult point because it asks us to do something we're not, we don't like to do. It asks us to look at society as a whole rather than ourselves as individuals. To acknowledge parts of our culture that we didn't do anything to create. And our reflex here is to say, no, that's done. Racism's done, it's a thing of the past. Now it's about individuals making right choices. But, and that's true. Individuals do make choices and, they need, and, and none of this erases that. And they are respo- individuals are responsible for their choices. But it is also true that choices make, take place in a larger context and the context of racism is not gone. It's there if you want to see it today, right on the map. You can go down and see it this afternoon, go drive from West Pasco all the way across the tracks to East Pasco and ask yourself a simple question, why is it like this? Why does it look like this? All, take, take Lewis all the way out to the freeway. And let me tell you why. Why I was warned within a few weeks of moving here that East Pasco was dangerous. Because in the 1940s, when the population of this area grew from the Hanford project, a significant number of black people moved here from the south as part of the Hanford project. So where did they live? Some of them lived in the Hanford housing area, but the city of Richland, off limits, only available to permanent Hanford workers, and black people were only hired as temporary construction workers. The city of Kennewick had vigorous neighborhood covenants that prohibited black people altogether. Pasco was the only place that black people were allowed to move in and only on the east side of the railroad tracks where the city did not provide water or trash service. Hanford workers had to commute on segregated buses from East Pasco to Hanford. And this strict segregation is why after the Hanford hiring boom slowed down, large portions of the black population moved out. They went to Seattle or Portland where there were less restrictions. And so today we have a rather small black population in the Tri-Cities. And this is just one tiny snapshot that you can go see for yourself And so what the present outcry is asking us to recognize is that just as the damage from decades of of domestic abuse don't disappear because the abuser apologizes and repents, so the societal impact of centuries of legalized institutional racism and slavery and discriminatory housing laws, they're going to linger long after they've been legally addressed. The margins of our society are visible on a map if we have the courage and honesty to look at them. And the Trinity sends us to do so because that's who God is. He identifies with the marginalized. And we can do this. We can do this. Why? Because the Trinity empowers us to be a people of peace. The Trinity empowers us to be a people of peace. See, the Trinity teaches that the work of the spirit is the work of God himself, that the church, what we're doing here, is no mere social club. This is not a coping mechanism. This is the way God is in the world right now. That's what God's doing. That's what the infinite eternal God is doing right now in the world is calling and gathering a whole bunch of sinners and working through them. It's been going on and and creating a people of peace. That's been going on since the day of Pentecost when he crossed the language barriers. And it is the only hope for reconciliation in our world today. We are the only hope for racial reconciliation in our world today because we are a people of peace that the triune God has created. How's it do this? I want three things. The gospel of peace, the gospel of peace creates, it removes every basis we have for division with one another. Ephesians two puts this powerfully. For Jesus himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law and its commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one man in place of two. So making peace, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross and thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to you who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What Paul is saying there is bigger than just Jew and Gentile. It's about Jesus removing every basis we have for putting ourselves in the right. Whether it be our virtue and our religious piety or law abiding, Our following the law, or whether it be our race, or whether it be our sinful choices, whether it be anything else we cling to, none of it puts us in the right. Jesus does. Jesus alone, by his life and death and resurrection, puts us in the right. And that creates peace because it frees us to admit our own sinfulness. And we don't need to defend ourselves anymore. We are free to admit when we have benefited or been privileged by sinful choices of others that we, had, we didn't create. We're, we're free to not find our righteousness in ourselves. And call sin, sin. Because we all come to God equally broken, equally sinful, equally in the wrong, equally needy. And we live only by the gospel of peace, which comes in Jesus. And in him there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in him. And the spirit, so through the gospel of peace. And the spirit working through the gospel of peace empowers us to be a people of nonviolence. Jesus said, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And anyone who slaps you on the right cheek, he will turn the other as well. And the world around us, we're seeing this week, is trying to make peace through violence. That's what it does. That's the only thing it knows how to do. Peace through power. Peace through burning buildings. Peace through the end of a sword. Peace at the point of a gun. But our Lord, the crucified peacemaker, made peace through the blood of his cross. And so we, as the church when we identify with the marginalized, we do not take up arms, we do not resort to violence or condone it, and we reject the rioting and looting, which is destroying and ruining human lives and devastating communities and perpetuating the cycle. And so we as Christians honor, and and so also as Christians, we honor, respect, and we pray for those who exercise the God-given authority of law enforcement, the police who put their lives at risk and put their lives on the line to protect the well-being of others. 1 Peter 2 says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the foolishness of ignorance people. Finally, as a people of peace, filled with the spirit of the triune God, we work for peace. We strive for it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We know, of course, that perfect peace is only achieved at the coming of our Lord Jesus, when justice finally rolls down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, and every race and tribe and tongue and language is gathered around the throne of the Lamb. But we are right now the aroma of Christ the peacemaker. And we do not sit on the sidelines and leave the peacemaking to others. And so we actively reject all forms of racism and discrimination and prejudice and violence. And we speak the truth in love, being careful not to spread falsehood, lies, or vitriol. And we, by the power of the Spirit, seek reconciliation with those with whom we are estranged, proclaiming the gospel of peace in Jesus Christ as a solution to the blight of racism. And we do all this because we believe in the Trinity, because we believe that God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally unity and difference, eternally peace and love and relationship perfected and completed and redeemed in Jesus Christ, the God who lifts up the lowly and who lives and acts in his people by the power of his spirit. And so today, and so tomorrow, in the face of whatever comes to us, the triune God is still with us, still acting, still empowering us to do what he created us to do when he made us in his image, empowering us to love across difference, to identify with those who are marginalized, and to be a people of peace. Let us pray. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope This has been a message from Emmaus Church, LCMS. We thank you for listening, and we invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. That's www.emmauspasco.org.